You're listening to Rave Youth Podcast. So I remember when I was a kid, you know, we would go feed the ducks all the time. Let's tell another duck story. Oh, that's good. I think ducks are ducks are nice. It was fun. We'd, we'd go to... Um, We'd go to sun, Sunrise, the little fountain area over there, and we'd take bread with us and and uh, feed the ducks. It was a lot of fun. So in the in the spirit of recreating such memories, we decided one day that we were going to take the girls to go feed the ducks. And it's like, the oh, this is going to be so great fountain. because it's going to be nostalgic and... Idyllic, very calm. It turned... Ugly quick. Oh, real quick. When we got there, we we had that we parked on the side of the road, a little farther away from the fountain, right? I mean, it, how how far how how close were we to the? We were like half a block maybe yeah. away. So we walked and had the the bread, and we get there and we stumbled upon a turf war. Yeah. We saw the ducks. We're like, oh, let's feed the ducks, and suddenly. I don't even know how many hordes of geese. I mean, I mean, there were easily fifty. They were not nice geese. Okay, they had some kind of alpha over there. I don't. It was some white one with this giant bill, and it was, it was. They were. I mean, they were aggressive. The ducks got out of there quick. I didn't see any ducks after that. Yeah, they left. So we're all standing there, and, and, and everybody, we're all freaking out because they surrounded us. Yeah, we got the bread out, and suddenly they surrounded us, and we realized that the situation has, has got ahead of us a little bit. <laughs> and the only thing that we could do was, I, was we, had, we had to get out of there. We had to get out of there. And, well, because we have two little kids at eye level of, of geese, geese speak. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> we, I take the bread, and I'm holding it out. And I'm holding Cecily in my arm and holding Eliana's hand, and Pat goes... He looks at me and he goes, run. And then the geese surround him and he goes, run! <laughs> like some sort of horror movie. And, then it's and I turn tail. And I'm telling you, I look behind me for a split second and Jillian did not look back. I was like, <laughs> you are on your own. I was out there and, and that was it. And I'm I, sprinting towards the car. Carrying Cecily, dragging Eliana. And, I'm, and I, I just dropped the, I just dropped the bread and ran. It was like throwing kids in cars. Yeah. Pat's on his own. I mean, yeah, yeah. you don't make it. That's it. We're leaving you. Finally got in the car though and shut the door and the and geese didn't get us. <laughs> there was peace again. <laughs> we never did that again. Never. Not one. Tell you what though, I, the nostalgia's gone for me. I don't. You know, <laughs> geese are no fun. Yeah. We're continuing our studies in John, beginning at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. 
Okay, so this week we're in John chapter 3. We, we finished out John chapter 2 last week, and now we're on John chapter 3. And we have a lot to talk about, um, and it's and it's going to be really good. I, w- I really want to pray because I want to make sure that um, my heart's right, and I want to make sure that our hearts are ready to hear from the Lord, and this is what He is doing. So let's pray uh, really quickly. Bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, God, for your... Uh, clarity, God. I pray for your grace. I pray for your heart. I pray that we will know you through your word and that it will be something that we can understand, Lord Jesus. And it's something that, that we will be able to, to listen to and read and know you better through it, Lord. I pray with all my heart these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we always do, uh, we're going to kind of recap Last week, uh, we talked about Jesus clearing out the temple, remember? And how he knew what was in the heart of man. That was the last couple of verses. And he saw this as an example of, of how people were treating the temple of God, the house of God. They were selling and buying animals. And the Pharisees and the chief priests were allowing this to happen, right? We said this last week, and they were even profiting from it. And, this, and, then, and we have this idea of Jesus knowing the heart of man. And this relates, actually, if we want to kind of kind of put it all together as, as, from the things that we have already learned and read, it relates to John chapter 1, right? He spoke about, it, it spoke about Jesus stepping into this darkness, him stepping into this darkness of sin in this world, the heart of man, the sin of man, he stepped into this. And when he di- did, and when he would, it means that things would change. And we've already seen that some of these things have changed, right? We, we've, we saw on how Jesus chose his disciples, the miracles that he performed, and even clearing out the temple, and that the gospel of writer the gospel writer John has been setting up this idea of who Jesus is. And he leaves us off at the end of John chapter 2 telling us that Jesus knew the heart of man, right? We see just really quick let's read verses 23 to 25 of John chapter 2 as kind of a kind of a springboard to John chapter 3. It says now when he Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in, in man. In the last few verses, the gospel uh, uh, writer is sort of setting up for uh, the next couple chapters, not just chapter three, but the next two chapters, and, and, and seeing who Jesus would be interacting with, okay, and, 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 and how he would interact with them. The last part of verse 25 says, He, Jesus, knew it was in the heart of man. Then right away we get to John chapter 3, and it says in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So Jesus knows the heart of man here, and here is a man, a person, who we'll talk about first, Nicodemus, and how Jesus interacted with him. So John chapter 3, verse 1. We'll we'll read verses 1 and 2. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, so let's stop. It's important to see right here and, and talk about who Jesus is meeting. Okay, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. And right away we see that he is meeting with a Pharisee. Okay, And from looking at what we've seen in the past, uh, we, we have this idea of what we would think about this man named Nicodemus, right? Because he's a Pharisee, at least when it comes to his character and opinion about Jesus. 
The, Pharisee, the Pharisees and chief priests, remember, wanted to show themselves as extra holy by how they viewed ceremony how they viewed ceremonial washing, for instance, and how they were the ones who allowed the temple of God, like we talked last week, to be treated the way it was during the Passover with all the buying and selling that went on. And this this is important context that we talk about because this stuff just happened. And now we see Jesus coming to, or we see Jesus talking to this Pharisee. We've talked about this in the past, right? The Pharisees started out as people, a people group that wanted to come against like the Greek influence, right? There's this, this influence of a Greek culture coming into this this place that they were, and so the Pharisees started out as a group of people who wanted to 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 not have um, the customs of uh, or Greek beliefs uh, seep into the Jewish faith in God, because there was a lot of different things that would influence that. But the, unfortunately, these people as Pharisees went off the rails eventually. We saw that they took the law of God and made it their God, so to speak. We talked before about this layer of understanding, right? So, you know, you have this middle middle uh, section where there's the law of God. So what the Pharisees would do is that they would put a, like a, a kind of a law layer around that. They would, they, so that, uh, let's make sure that, you know, we don't break the law of God. So in order to do that, we're going to put another layer around that to, to make sure that we have these these kind of uh, uh, ceremonies and, and rituals that we follow so we don't penetrate that to the point where we're, you know, doing something against the law of God. And then let's put another layer around that. And let's put another layer around that. So they kept on putting these layers and layers around for the, to the point where you know, there was there was no way they could have come against the law of God. So they, then we see that then with all these layers on on top of God's law, the Jews that the Jews were trying to follow, it did two things. Okay, it made them look at what they were doing as more important than than who they were doing it for. It was for God, and and two, it made them believe that they were more holy than anyone else. Right, and it it made them full of pride, causing them to miss the mark entirely of who God is and what had He had called them to do. And Nicodemus was a part of this inner circle of Pharisees. In verse one, it says he was a ruler of the Jews. He was respected. He had authority. He had money. He had status. But but when we read verse two, we see something unique about Nicodemus. Okay, verse two says this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, this man who's Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So this Pharisee named Nicodemus seeks Jesus out. Says he came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus met with him. This small part of the verse alone says something different about this Pharisee in comparison to the others. If we remember in John chapter 1, we spoke about how Jesus' first two disciples, Andrew and John, had met Jesus. And then they followed him to where he was staying, and they stayed with him the rest of the day. Remember, when Jesus had asked them what they were seeking, they didn't tell him right away. They said, well, where are you staying? Because the things they wanted to know were too much to be answered right there with Jesus. So they went with him, his disciples, went with him and had the opportunity to speak with him for a long time privately. And so here in chapter 3, we see Nicodemus has chosen to do the same thing as Jesus' first disciples. 
he came to Jesus at night. This uh, kind of understanding at night, some people believe that, you know, it might be because he's worried about, you know, what the other Pharisees would say if they knew he was meeting Jesus, so he did it in secret. Or some believe that Nicodemus met at night because Jesus' ministry would go on all day and night was the only time he could really talk to him. It might have been both. Okay, but in either case, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and that's the point where the, that the gospel writer is making. Because whatever Jesus had been doing out in public, miracles, teaching, even clearing out the temple, made Nicodemus want to know more about who Jesus was. So he comes to Jesus and says, "Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the th- these, these signs that you do unless God is with him." And unlike other religious authorities. Who may have questioned Jesus' right to do the things that he had done, Nicodemus instantly acknowledges that Jesus must at least be very close to God because of these things. And the reason he thinks this, because who can do these things? Who's able to do these kinds of signs unless God is with them? And then we see Jesus respond to this. But what does he do? He in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What? Wait a minute. Why did he say that? At first glance, it might seem like Jesus is going off on something else. Okay? Nicodemus says these things to Jesus about, Oh, we know you're a teacher from God. And Jesus says, "No, Unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But he's responding to Nicodemus in a way that to him, to Nicodemus, right away doesn't seem to make sense, right? But Jesus knew Nicodemus the same way as he knew anyone else, okay? He knew him the way he knew Peter. He knew him the way he knew Nathaniel. And he would know, and he knows why Nicodemus is there, okay? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's committed himself to a life that he believes will give him heaven in the end. He has believed that this these act, this action as a Pharisee, these things that he's done will give him eternal life. But the moment Jesus came on the scene, he's not so sure anymore. Jesus is in his mercy, uh, doesn't sit idly by, you know, wrapped in pretense and a lead up of conversation when Nicodemus is saying, well, we know you must be a teacher. Let's talk about that for a second of God because Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't just talk about Anything except the point of why he knows Nicodemus is there. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Unless you're born again, he says. This born again could also be translated like a, specifically in John's gospel as being kind of born from above, you know, born anew, the change of your heart. But Nicodemus isn't quite understanding this, right? I mean, would we understand this? I don't think, I didn't understand it when I was younger. Or even before, maybe. We didn't understand these things that Jesus is saying. Nicodemus said to him in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it goes, or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus doesn't understand and thinks it's absurd to think of someone being actually born all over again. So Jesus clarifies this a little bit, right? He talks about being born of water and spirit. 
this idea of being born of water sort of goes back to actually John the Baptist. And, and, and it's, not, it's not a jump to go there because we had just talked about John the Baptist a chapter and a half before, right? It's this idea of being uh, born of water or baptism. Remember that the Pharisees had no problem with baptism in general. They were the ones who believed that keeping themselves quote-unquote clean would make them holy. But John the Baptist's baptism was about change of heart too. Repentance first. Look, water cleansing will not save you. That's what Jesus is saying. It represents the cleansing that only God can do by His Spirit. He's saying, he's saying look, you're, you, you're not born of water. You're, this is not what saves you. What saves you is, is, is the Spirit. Right, Jesus also, in the same sentence, touches on the fact that you're not that, that being you're not born into salvation. You're not born when, when he says and he says when that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Your membership into the kingdom of God is not a prerogative of any particular race or culture. These are mind blowing concepts. Okay, to someone like Nicodemus who has spent so much, if not all of his life, in this Pharisee way of living, right? He, he squashes, Jesus squashes right away this, this understanding of, look, this ceremonial washing that you think is, is what saves you doesn't save you. That's, this wasn't even the point John the Baptist was making. But let's just touch on it and say, look, you're not only born of water, but of spirit. And let's just talk about the flesh. Hey, you're, not, you're, you're born as an Israelite. That doesn't save you like you thought. Jesus needed to clarify to this person who is a Pharisee, who was used to the idea of salvation as an act of works or a law, an act of man. Now he's being taught that salvation is a gift of God. And he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The, mind, the, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from where or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The will of God is not something you control. This is a gift that God is choosing to give, okay? And in this understanding, God is the one who gives you that rebirth. Who can control that you're born? In other words, can you control your own birth? Nicodemus just cannot get this around his head. This idea of grace and simply having their heart changed toward God, that that's all it is. In verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. All those years of training okay, for Nicodemus showed he knew nothing about how to be saved and be with God forever. Jesus is pointing this out, that even though you are this Pharisee, you did not even know the heart of God. Jesus knows the heart of man. He knew Nicodemus' heart. And he's, he's squashing this idea of what Nicodemus' thought was on how to, to be saved. On what it even meant to know God. 
we get to verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the heart and center of this wonderful plan of redemption, okay, which the Pharisees have missed so completely, Jesus takes this Old Testament reference from Numbers 21 as a symbol of what Jesus would do. He would be lifted up onto the cross to die for our sins. This idea uh, of, uh, of why the Pharisees thought they needed to be so holy was out of fear of God's judgment, okay? In knowing that God would not allow sin forever. It wasn't a, their motivation for their holy living wasn't unfounded in, in, in the fact that they knew that God, there was a reason why we had the law. You know, there was a reason why we had these things and they, they had this fear. So they want to say, in, in, in knowing that God would not allow this sin forever, let us, let's be holy to avoid God's judgment. Okay? But Jesus clarifies this here when he says that he must be lifted up. It, he must be. It must be him. It is only Jesus that can take the judgment of sin on himself. The Pharisees couldn't take the judgment. We cannot take the judgment of God. Only Jesus, it must be him who takes that judgment. Then we are able to believe on him, and that's when you'll have eternal life. Okay. So what, this is what we see ultimately happening here. Jesus speaking with a man okay, who believed he knew the things of God so well that he was above the common person in spirituality. But Jesus was saying, no. These things that you have thought you would save you, doing the right thing, being extra holy, observing and practicing the law to a point of idolatry. This is what the heart of man has gotten you. This emptiness, this, this idea that, that this is all there is. This is not what saves you. What saves you is the heart of God. It's through Christ alone you are saved. His death that should have been yours covers the guilt of your sin, being lifted onto that cross. And our trust and belief and that, in knowing Jesus is and why he came, will give us back the thing that was broken. Our relationship with Jesus, knowing him, knowing his character, knowing his heart, knowing why he did what he did, so that, the, so that, the, that we can have eternal life. So what category do we fall into? Are we a Pharisee? like Nicodemus, or we have believed something about God for so long because we were conditioned to believe it, even if it was wrong. What did Jesus do for him? Jesus went straight to the heart of it. You need rebirth in your heart. It's not about the things you've done that make you worthy of God. It's about what Jesus did on that cross, taking your sin that has made you worthy. Not your works, but his. He has taken it personally to Nicodemus. Where Jesus' ministry has been among the people. Where they have seen him teach and perform miracles and signs. And we have seen the Pharisees reject this. And Jesus' heart here has shown that not only will he, will he be willing to, to come to a Pharisee and, and, and change his heart, he'll do it one-on-one with him privately. 
So let's, so let's lay down our heavy burdens. We're caring and simply listen to what Jesus is saying. It is simple. Believe and allow him to renew your heart just like Nicodemus from whatever it was that you brought with you into that room to begin with. We're going to read the next story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Terrible Lie. Adam and Eve lose everything from Genesis 3. Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful new home and everything was perfect for a while. Until the day when everything went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. Satan had once been the most beautiful angel, but he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. He grew proud and evil and full of hate, and God had to send him out of heaven. Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan. Stop this love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake and waited in the garden. Now, God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree. God told them, because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me, and then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew that if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him, and they would try and make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him, and life without him wouldn't be a life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat that nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's word hissed into her ears and sunk down deep in her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand. A deer darted in a thicket. It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong. And they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid. Later that evening, as God was taking his walk, he called to them, Children! Usually, Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice and would run to him, but this time they ran away from him and hid in the shadows. Where are you? God called. Hiding, Adam said. We're afraid of you. Did you eat that fruit I told you not to eat? God asked them. Adam said, Eve made me do it. 
What have you done? God asked. Eve said, The serpent made me do it. And a terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world, and it would never leave. God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, it would have all been over after that, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come and rescue you, and when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I will get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. Well, another week has come to a close. So that's it for us. Um, uh, Jillian is asleep, so I'm going to let her sleep for a while. But a quick shout out to Colby, Chloe, and Anne. Have a great week, guys. Happy Easter. <laughs>